text for this morning's sermon is Luke 17, 1 through 6. If you want to turn there in your Bibles, Luke 17, 1 through 6, we'll be focusing on verses 1 through 3 this morning. And he said to his disciples, temptations to sin are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea than that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. The apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. And the Lord said, if you had faith like a grain of mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. Father, as we come to Christ's teaching in Luke 17, Uh, Father, I pray that you give us insight into our own hearts. Uh, Father, I pray that you would use this text to build up the church body, that it would cause us to see the glory of Christ even more in the cross. Father, I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Inherently, in every human heart, we see the beauty of justice. There's something built in in the conscience of every man that knows that justice is beautiful. When I found out this summer as I watched different cities across the United States uh, be set ablaze and it seemed like you could just destroy businesses and nothing happens. There was something inside of me that was upset with that. And it made me feel good when I found out that the FBI and other law enforcement agencies were tracking these guys down on video and charging them with their crimes. That's something that we want. We want criminals to be prosecuted. If someone is killed because they're of another race, I want the killer to be prosecuted. I want justice. There's something that we want in our hearts where we say justice is beautiful. We want politicians to be consistent. We want the media to be consistent and in a sense give us justice to handle things fairly. Everybody can see the beauty of justice. But... If you've been in the church long or you've been around Christianity long, 
you know that the justice flag is not the only flag you want to fly. If you have any inclination in your heart that you yourself are unjust and sinful, then your heart also longs for mercy and grace. And when we see someone show mercy to someone else, we see that it's inherently beautiful. And when we see someone show grace to someone, we can see the beauty of it. And within the human heart, you have these two things that seem at odds with each other. But even unbelievers can see the beauty of justice and the beauty of mercy. You just watch their movies and you see who the heroes are. And the heroes are those who are for justice and those who show mercy. And as we think of terms like this, it's important for us to define them. So let's just define these three terms. Justice. In a real simple way is getting what you deserve. That's what justice is. We want people to get what they deserve. That's what you want out of a judge in the courtroom. You want fairness. You want the judge to do what is right. Mercy, on the other hand, is not getting what you deserve. If justice is getting what you deserve, then mercy is not getting what you deserve. And third, grace is getting what you do not deserve. Are you confused yet? Justice is getting what you do deserve. Mercy is not getting what you deserve. And grace is getting what you do not deserve. And we see in this text that God wants us to love justice and righteousness and holiness and also wants us to love mercy. And we know that the only place in this world where those truths come together in the most beautiful fashion is in the cross of Jesus Christ. Most of us tend to one or another. Legalists, if you tend towards legalism, you tend towards justice. But in order to play this game, you got to kind of be blind to your own flaws. Or it's no fun to play the legalist game. And those who are lopsided towards mercy and grace and ignore justice, they are those who fail to remember who God is and what sin is. 
In Romans 5, 7, we see this beautiful crescendo of two beautiful things coming together in one person, in one event in history. Romans 5, 7 says, For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though for perhaps a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died. Two things on display. Love and punishment for sin in the same event. God shows us his love and his justice in the cross of Christ. For verse 9 of Romans 5 says, Since therefore we've now been justified by his blood found not guilty, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. We, we don't get what we deserve in the blood of Christ. And Christ took what he did not deserve on that cross. And if you're a Christian who is all about the grace of God, but haven't thought much about your own sin and battle with sin and personal holiness, you've forgotten the beauty of the cross. And we're going to see that this morning as we look at our text. We're actually going to look at uh, three verses this morning. We're going to uh, take verses three through six next week. But I want you to look at Luke uh, 17, one through six. I just want to make a few comments about it so we kind of get our arms wrapped around what we're looking at before we dive into the details. We read in verse 1, and he said to his disciples, temptations to sin are sure to come. Now just a note on that word temptations, in other translations, uh, it can be translated stumbling blocks or offenses are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. Woe means horror and terror and destruction. Ultimately, hell. And, he, and, then it, and then he says, it would be better for him to have a millstone were hung around his neck and were cast into the sea than he should cause one of these little ones to sin. So what we see is this passage is about sin. Jesus is trying to teach us something about sin and stumbling blocks that cause us and other people to fall into sin. And then in verse 3, we get really the main charge of what we're, our text today, pay attention to yourselves. And that's the main question I'm asking you this morning is have you been paying attention or have you just been wandering 
daydreaming your way through life like I can so easily do. My Christianity can become familiar to the point where sin is, yeah, that theological thing. And I can forget to pay attention to my own life. And then if you, we read on, we see what we're going to look at next week. If your brother sins, rebuke him. So Jesus is saying, your sin matters. Pay attention to how you live. And the sins of your brothers and sisters in Christ matter. He, he's talking about confronting sin. But then he says, if your brother sins, rebuke him. If he repents, forgive him. So we see Jesus saying, take sin serious, his holiness serious, and take forgiveness serious. And as we dive into forgiveness next week, I'm telling you, I've already worked through a good portion of this sermon. It's convicting. One of the easiest ways we sin is the way we hold unforgiveness in our own hearts. But if we're going to look at this passage as a whole, it's a passage about the seriousness of sin. And we also see the grace of God for sin. Both things held high. Where sin's high, Christ's grace is high. And Jesus is trying to wake us from a sense of uh, lethargy as we think about sin in our own life. This is a text about our brothers and sisters in Christ. It's a text about how we relate to each other in the church. Ultimately, it's a text about how we love God and love other people in the way we relate to sin and deal with sin. It's important, uh, and I guess I'll make one comment about verse 6, and, and then the Lord said, or verse 5, the apostle said to the Lord, increase our faith. After they hear what he says about sin and forgiveness, they say, give us more faith. And Jesus essentially says, no, your faith that you have, if it's authentic, is enough. It's not wrong to want more faith, but supernatural faith, the faith of a mustard seed, can do mighty things. Christ hasn't left them in a position where they don't have spiritual power to deal with sin and forgiveness. It's important to know that these six verses are kind of like a summary of a much more detailed passage in Matthew 18. And, and so if you have your Bibles, I just want to show you Matthew 18. It's going to kind of help us as we try to discern what Jesus is talking about. If you look at verse 3 in Matthew 18, Jesus says, 
Truly, I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you'll never enter the kingdom of God. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And then we read, whoever receives such a child in my name receives me, but whoever causes one of these little ones to believe in me to sin, it is better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. Woe to the world for temptation to sin, for it is necessary that sin comes, but woe to the one whom the temptation comes. So you can see that Luke is most likely referring to this same teaching that Christ gave. We can see in Matthew 18 that the children, the little children are believers. These aren't just little children, but he's talking about woe to those who cause believers to fall into sin. And we also see in verse 7, woe to the world for temptations to sin. What's the result the world gets for tempting believers to sin, for throwing stumbling blocks before believers? Let's take the Pharisees whom Jesus has just been dealing with. Hell is the result of causing believers to sin. When a non-believer, when the world picks on the church, persecutes the church, in a sense, throws stumbling blocks before the church. When false teachers do this, like the Pharisees, Jesus is warning, ultimate destruction is coming, but then he speaks to believers. Our passage then points us to believers and tells us to watch ourselves. What are we supposed to look at? How are we supposed to think of our sin? You see, we don't look at an eternal hell when we consider our sin. We look at a cross where the Son of God was put on it and where the Father poured out His wrath on His Son. And that's where we learn about our sin and how bad it is and how sinful it is when we don't watch our lives and desire to live a godly life in honoring and honor Christ with it. And then if we were to just read on in Matthew 18, we see other themes that come up. <laughs> in verse 8 he says, and if your hand or foot causes you to sin, cut it off, throw it away. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands and feet to be thrown into eternal fire. If your eye causes you to sin, tear it out, throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than two eyes be thrown into the hellfire. And you say, well, where is that in Luke 17? I think it's in verse 3 where it says, pay careful attention to yourselves. That's what he's saying. Cut off your arms. Pluck out your eyes. Believers, take your sin seriously. So when you repay attention to yourself, 
I think we're supposed to be thinking of cutting off arms and plucking out eyes type of repentance and, and taking our sin seriously. And then in Matthew 18, 15 through 17, you have the classic passage on what you might call church discipline. You go to your brother who sins against you. You get the details of how that works. And then in verse 21, Peter came up and said, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? The Jews said three times. After that, you don't have to worry about it. And so he comes up, do I need to forgive him seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say seven times, but 77 times, meaning infinitely. And so we can see, as we, as we look at this text before us, all these same details are there in a more compressed manner. So let's dive into Luke 17.1. And he said to his disciples, temptations or stumbling blocks or offenses to sin are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. It would be better for him that a millstone, a millstone was a big stone that a donkey would pull around in a circle that would crush grain or, or sometimes grapes and you would get grape juice to make wine out of. And these stones were big and it's an interesting picture Jesus paints. It would be better. This is a bad day when one of those stones gets hung around your neck and you get thrown into the water and Jesus isn't talking about a bad day. He's talking about that's better than something else. Jesus is talking this way because he wants his disciples to take serious their lives and the impact their life has on other people. When we think of sin, if I were to pitch you two categories, sin and other people, you probably wouldn't think of yourself. But that's actually what Jesus does here. He says, I want you to think about sin and I want you to think about other people, but I want you to think about your own sin. It's easy to think about other people's sin, but I want you to pay careful attention to your life and how that affects other people's lives. Sometimes we think of sin as merely a personal, individual thing. I'll worry about mine, you worry about Yours, my sin doesn't affect anyone else. When was the last time you thought about how important your life is in regards to someone else's holiness, someone else's life? When I first came to this text, I always use James 1 when I'm counseling someone, doing biblical counseling, James 1 teaches that temptation come from within, out of the heart of man. In, in James 1, it says, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, 
For when he has stood the test, he'll receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. And the thing I always point out is, quit blaming your spouse for your own sin because temptation comes from within. That's what James is pointing out. See, Jesus could walk into a place with many temptations and do fine because his heart's good. And so a lot of us understand that concept that I'm responsible, that my heart goes, falls to temptations because my heart longs for those things. But there's another category that Jesus gives us in Luke 17 where he says, what you do can affect someone else's life of holiness, which means this. I can't blame someone else for my sin, but someone else might be judged by God for temptation that led me, my own heart, to choose that sin. You see that? Which means we're not just responsible for what I do, but to live so carefully that I not cause a brother or sister to sin. You see, it's easy if I just got to deal with my own heart. Well, someone, you know, I'm going to speak carelessly. I'm good my, with myself. Yeah, but what if your speaking care, carelessly causes a brother or sister to sin or to struggle? There's a sense where when we take serious how our life affects someone else and that God cares about it, is when we will begin to take serious uh, our sin. And how big a deal is it to cause a brother to sin? It's better to have a millstone hung around your neck. That's just dying a physical death. When we cause someone to sin, it's a spiritual problem that if they don't have Christ, leads to hell. And as believers, we do have Christ. But with that forgiveness, we seek to fulfill the law by living righteous lives. Not to earn our salvation, but to glorify God. And so point one in your notes is fear sin. See that it results in hell for the world. And for believers, it results in the Son of God being crucified on a cross, bearing the wrath of God in our place. And the second point, and what I want to kind of unpack the rest of the time, is after we've taken sin serious and see the results of it, to engage in the battle, living out, pay attention to yourselves. What does that look like? How does our sin affect other people? In 2 Samuel, when Nathan is just 
confronted David in his sin, David said to Nathan, I've sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. So there's grace, right? Not, there's mercy, not getting what you, he deserves. Nevertheless, by this deed, you've utterly scorned the Lord. The child who is born to you shall die. There's justice. You see, both things in David's life. And although David admits his sin and is forgiven, the Lord is scorned. If you were to read it in the King James, it says this, Because by this deed thou hast given great occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme. So David's adultery affected non-believers, his enemies, far beyond Bathsheba and Uriah and even the people of Israel. And so I want you to ask yourself the question, how can I be a stumbling block to my brothers and sisters in Christ? How in a sense can, rather than receive one of these little ones, but put a stumbling block in front of them? How can I in a sense reject believers by the way I don't carefully watch my life? J.C. Ryle says this, the inconsistencies of professing Christians to often supply, uh, are often supply the world with an excuse for neglecting Christianity altogether. An inconsistent believer, whether he knows it or not, his daily, is daily doing harm to souls. His life is a positive injury to the gospel of Christ. We cannot live to ourselves if we are Christians. See, that's the lie we believe. The eyes of many will always be upon us. Men will judge us by what they see far more than what they hear. If they see the Christian contradicting his practice by what he professes to believe, they are justly stumbled and offended. For the world's sake, as well as our own, let us labor to eminently be holy. Let us endeavor to make a religion beautiful in the eyes of men and to adorn the doctrine of Christ in all things. Every day of your life matters what you do. Because God has called you to two fundamental things, love God and love neighbor. And when you're forgiven in Christ and given the Holy Spirit, you actually are able to do those two things or not. You can walk with the Spirit or you can walk in the flesh. But you don't have an ordinary day that doesn't matter, ever. We always ought to pay careful attention to our lives. Ryle goes on to say the cross of Christ will always give offense. Let us not increase that offense by my, my carelessness in my daily life. The cross is offensive in and of itself. We need not make it more offensive by the way we sinfully live. 
So let's examine a few examples. Let's take a few examples of how we can live sin in a way that harms brothers and sisters in Christ and the church. First, let's take the example of immodesty. Let's ask the question, is a girl culpable before God for dressing in a way that might tempt a brother to stumble or to lust after her? Now, someone might say, well, according to James 1, temptation comes from within. So a woman might say, it's not my fault if he lusts after me. Well, it is true. If he lusts after you, he's accountable before God for that sin. But according to this passage in Luke 17, the way you dress, you are accountable And the way you dress can affect the sin of your brothers or sisters in Christ. And that ought to bother you as much as it would bother you to have a millstone hung around your neck and be thrown into the sea. In fact, in 1 Thessalonians 1, here's how Paul brings about the seriousness of not taking our sexual sin serious and causing a brother to stumble. He says, finally, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and please God just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. He's saying, take the way you walk seriously. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification the killing of sin and becoming more holy. That's God's will for your life, he says. That you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. And here's the reason, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter. Be careful how you live. Remember the will of God is your sanctification. Hold your body in self-control. Why? So you don't wrong your brother or sister in Christ sexually. And then look at the warning. Because, halfway through verse 6, the Lord is an avenger in all these things as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. It matters how you dress. Ladies and young ladies and little girls, it matters. It's not just your body. God gave you that body. He's given it to you to glorify God. He hasn't given it to you to draw people in to darkness. I don't care how normal the world makes the clothing we see. It matters. Or is a brother culpable for encouraging another, let's just say, by drinking alcohol sinfully? Imagine how one believer might drink alcohol and cause another 
brother or sister to stumble. We have Romans 14, 1 Corinthians 8 that clearly talks about an issue like this. It was food sacrificed to idols. Uh, the Gentiles that became Christians have spent their whole life worshiping their idols by sacrificing food to them. And Paul declared that all food is clean. That's true. But there are certain circumstances where if you eat food sacrificed to idols, you might cause a weaker brother to stumble. Romans 14, 13 says, Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or a hindrance in the way of a brother. Never to put an offense there. I know and I am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself. He says, I know the right theological point, but we're not legalists. We're about love. We're not about my rights as much as I'm about loving my brother and loving my sister in Christ. And he, and, and he says, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it's unclean. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you're no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. So Paul had in mind that a Christian with good theology could live in such a way that could destroy a brother for whom Christ died. Do you see that? You see how responsible Paul holds all Christians for their own actions and how carefully they're to think through things like drinking alcohol or <clears throat> the way a person dresses or a way a person speaks. <clears throat> Let's take the example of the way we talk as Christians. And I can do this, and I've seen it done, and we do it to each other all the time. There's a sense where when we're together, we're comfortable, and that's good. But sometimes comfortability causes us to quit being careful in the way we talk to one another, and the way we speak, and the way our attitudes are with one another. Does it matter what my attitude is when I'm fellowshipping with other believers? Does it matter how carefully I talk and what I say? Proverbs 15.1 says, A soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. I'm guessing that's sinful anger. So the way I talk could affect whether someone else sins. Yes, they're accountable to God, but I'm also held accountable. There's a way I can speak that helps someone else live a more godly life. Proverbs 16, 23, the heart of the wise makes his speech judicious, which means he's careful and adds persuasiveness to his lips. Gracious words are like honeycomb, sweetness to the soul, and health to the body. And that's what we ought to want to be to each other. We want people to talk to us and experience a building up and light. That doesn't mean we ignore sin. We're going to see next week 
we confront it. But even when we confront it, we confront it with an attitude of humility and, and desire to forgive. Proverbs 16.27, a worthless man plots evil and his speech is like a scorching fire. A dishonest man spreads strife and a whisperer separates close friends. A man of violence entices his neighbor and leads him in a way that is not good. Proverbs 6.19, a false witness who breathes out lies are a false witness who breathes out lies and one who sows discord and among the brothers is one who sows discord. So we can come into a group of believers and we can sow discord and we can gossip or we can have certain attitudes or unforgiveness in our heart and it matters. I'm reluctant to point this out, but I think we must see. Let me point it out in my own life. Can I speak carelessly every day? Can I be talking about a theological issue with, you guys have probably experienced this with me before, and I begin to get worked up and it all of a sudden feels personal and no longer we're looking at a text, but it seems like is the relationship in the balance in this conversation? Is there coolness on this relationship because of the way I'm talking? How I talk matters in other people's lives. And I tremble for members of the media that make a living out of spinning strife and lies and contention. And I fear for a president who often opens his mouth and scorching fire comes out. Makes my thanksgiving difficult with my family. And I sin and I'm accountable. And my family sins. Does it matter what Donald Trump says out of his mouth? Does God care the impact it has? Does it bring out kindness and generosity and love and those things? Does the media do that? Does liberal politicians? Probably not all across the board. But the point is, the illustration shows how quickly. Read James 3. He talks about how the tongue sets ablaze a fire and it comes from the pit of hell. So, in these times, gather together. We need the believers. And when you're together, be careful. Love each other. Take serious the way you talk with one another. So often throughout the New Testament, Paul is condemning those who want to argue about foolish controversies and quarrels. We live in a day and age where there's 8 million of these to argue about. When we gather together, let's not do that. Let's not talk about conspiracy theories. Let's build each other up in Christ. 
Someone might say, how come you never talk about politics from the pulpit? Here's why. I say one thing political, and you all hear it with different ears. One person says, well, that means he's this way, and another person's offended and says he doesn't care about this. You want to know why? Because in our political system, we got a knot. And I try to talk about a thread in there. It's going nowhere. So rather, the goal is to point you to Christ, the rock. You come to church, you realize, man, these, these problems are big, but then you get a sovereign God who's in control of all things, and you realize the mercy and grace and love He has for you in Christ, then all of a sudden the world's problems shrink down to an appropriate size, and now you're able, rather than to get angry, to point people to the only hope there is in Christ Himself. And so my prayer is that we think soberly about the impact our life has on other people. As Christians, we don't do this to earn our salvation. We do this because we believe what the Scripture says, that God's will for our life is sanctification. That God's will for our life is that we shine bright in a dark world because we're desiring to live holy lives. We're humbly repenting and carefully seeking to live in such a way that shines the light of Christ. We're bringing the gospel in this hand. Let's not throw out a stumbling block with this hand. That's what we so often do, and yet we're called to be witnesses, ambassadors for Christ. I'm not smart enough to sift through the details of what's happening. How do you even know it's true? I don't, but I... I know this is true, so let's be an expert in what we know, and let's stay centered on what ultimately will last, because kings and presidents will come and go, and governments will raise up, and governments will be torn down, but there's one throne that will never be torn down, and it's the throne of Christ. And on that throne, we, we learn two things about him. Does he care about sin? He cares enough about sin that he willingly came and died on the cross to take care of it, to destroy it. He gave his life, and on that cross he bore the wrath of Almighty God. All the wrath that should have been poured out on us for all eternity, he swallowed up. The reason why he could do that in such a short amount of time is he's the eternal Son of God. If you and I die outside of Christ, the punishment we bear is eternal punishment. It will never stop because our sin is against an eternal God. But the eternal Son of God died in your place to show you, to teach us, I hate sin. I came to destroy sin. And so I can give you mercy and grace. So let's be like God. Let's hate sin. Let's take sin seriously let's put to death the deeds of the spirit and the are the deeds of the flesh by the power of the spirit for god's glory and for others good father i pray that uh, we would take serious this vivid illustration that christ gives us 
Father, when we don't take sin serious, it's not the Scripture's fault. Our own hearts can become dull. We can become conditioned to, with our sin to where we don't hate it like you hate it. Father, give us the types of confessions of sin that agrees with you about our sin, that, that seeks to hate it the way you hate it. And Father, we thank you that when we come to you and confess our sin, that you're a God that is merciful and gracious and your steadfast love endures forever. You're a God who forgives sins. And you tell us to draw near to your throne so that we'll find help in time of need. And Father, we thank you for that. I pray that because of this word, we'd be careful and judicious in the way we love each other and function as a body. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.